Guts and Grit Podcast. A podcast where we discuss overcoming the odds, resiliency, and never giving up. Join us each week as host John Melson, Joy Vaterbeck, and Mark Renahan discuss coming back from failure and never quitting. Guts and Grit, it's go time. Welcome to the second edition of the Guts and Grit podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mark Renahan. Of course, I have the lovely Joey Vatrebeck next to me. And as always, Johnny Melson, our other host, he is coming to us live. John, where are you today? Hey, I'm, I'm currently up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Fort I'm up here training with some 82nd paratroopers. Excellent, with the 82nd paratroopers. Nice. I like it. And let's not forget our engineer, Noah. We want to thank you all for tuning in to our second episode where we're going to finish out the incredible story of uh, Johnny here, who uh, has done a lot of things we're getting into. But we stopped last week, I believe, you were a Boston police officer mm -hmm. when we stopped mm -hmm. talking. You had already done a stint in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what happened from when you were, uh, when you got into the Army, I guess we'll go from the Boston police until you get into the Guard and, you know, all your tours and all that, John. Well, my time on the Boston Police Department, I had a great time. Um, it was... No, I don't think many people can actually say that they have uh, worked towards and accomplished a dream of theirs that they had as, as, a, as a child. Um, it was something I wanted to do my entire life. Um, and like I said uh, in our previous episode, uh, a lot of my family went into law enforcement, so I was following their footsteps. Um, so it was like living a dream job. I had a, a extremely great experience uh, going through the police academy, uh, the, the ability to extend out your network of friends and acquaintances, um, getting a chance to get out there and actually contributing to trying to make the neighborhood that we grew up in, you know, where we live in, uh, trying to contribute to it being, you know, in a positive manner. Right. Um, unfortunately, um, with all the goodness of accomplishing that and living a dream, uh, there had come a time where uh, my personal life was a mess as a police officer. I, I I was out there trying to guide people in the right direction and uphold the law and keep the peace. But in my personal life, uh, it, it, it was a mess. And I found myself in a, in a horrible situation. Um, I, I didn't have the uh, maturity, I would say. Um, looking back upon it, I didn't have the maturity and the, the, the wrong mindset where it was uh, to exhibit emotional intelligence to recognize a situation I found myself in in a very volatile relationship. Um, back back then, uh, as, a, as a young man, uh, the, the last thing across my mind would be that I would lose my dream, um, that I was potentially someone that I would end up putting handcuffs on. And I made some, uh, some bad choices, uh, a very emotional night. Um, I, I discovered my, my fiance, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, had been involved with, with another man. Um, I discovered that, uh, and then it was, uh, one bad decision after another, um, and, and ended up accruing a large debt to pay back to society. Um, I had violated my oath as a policeman. Um, I had let my friends like yourself and, and my family down in, in the most horrible way. I, I, I just couldn't imagine when I was going through it, what was taking place. And um, to understand now, looking back, 
at, at how horrible of a situation that was um, on, on her, on top of everyone else. Like she, no one, no one should be subjected to anything like that. And like I said, I didn't have at that time the maturity and the level of emotional intelligence to, to detach myself from that situation. And I let my emotions run wild and get the best of me. Um, and unfortunately, it cost me my dream job. Um, and I, I can't even fathom the amount of damage that it, it brought on her to be able to endure and, and for her to overcome what I had put her through that evening. Um, but I, I'll tell you, Mark, when uh, a lot of a lot of time spent alone to think and, and assess. And uh, I'll, rem I'll never forget um, how it impacted. I know it impacted my family very badly. It weighed heavily on me, but to see how how you let you you let your emotions get the best of you, and the letdown that you see, like for me, was the letdown in my mom's face. Yep. Right, and to have to live with that burden and and realize, wow, I I, I really jacked up my life right now, and my mom and my family. Um, my enduring through the Marine Corps, I, I let so many people down and I should have known better than to go ahead and, and let my emotions run the way they did and, and not detach myself. Um, I'll never forget when um, it was going back and forth in the courtroom. They wanted uh, a guilty plea or they wanted me to go to trial and things weren't looking very good for a trial. At the time, it was, it was not too long after O.J. Simpson. I was a police officer mm -hmm. at the time. It was not looked highly upon any of these type of incidents. Um, and they, they were going back and forth, offering me these different sentences. And finally, they, uh, they let my mother come in the, in, the, in the holding cell. And my mom sat with me, and she was pretty tore up. And, uh, you know, they, she's like, John, if you take this to trial... You know, I don't know if I'll be here when you come out because they they want to put you away for twenty years. Yeah. And and she's like, you you, you really got to think this out. And she's like, they're offering you three three to three and a half years to five if you plead guilty. And we can put this behind us. And I'm going to be here for you when you come home. And you still got your whole life ahead of you. And I, at that point, I just felt my whole life was over. Mm -hmm. mm. I go to jail. I'm a policeman. I'm going to jail. Mm. My life's over. Like, I'm, I'm not going to make it out. Um, and she was crying and she was crying. She's like, John, I'll be here when you come home. <laughs> mm. Awesome. And my, my grandmother, she's old school. She, my grandmother was standing right there at the, at the cell door. And she's like, if you didn't do this, don't you dare say you did it. And I looked at her. I was like, Nana, like, I'm looking at 20 years. I've never been in trouble like this. Like, it wasn't like Nana trouble where I'd get a whooping. <laughs> right? This was different. I was like, I was like, Nana, I, I don't know. And she was like, she's like, don't you do it. And I looked at my mother and, and she was just in pieces. And I, I looked over at my lawyer. I was like, I, I'm done watching her cry. Go in there and tell them I'll take the plea agreement. I'll, I'll, get it, oh, boy. Yeah. I'll take the whooping. Let's go. Let's do it. And, you know, my mom was coming up to visit me on a pretty regular basis. And I was in and about, about a year, about a year and a half. My mother came up to visit me and, you know, we're behind glass. 
and uh, we're talking on the phones and, and she had told me, and at the time my mom was 45. So I'm older than my mom now. Right. Um, she was 45 and she was very giddy and, and happy to come see me. And she was like, John, I, I'm so happy. I got to tell you something. I'm like, what's that? She's like, I met someone. She's like, I don't have to be alone anymore. And you know, it's, it's hit me in my heart. I'm just like, oh, geez, you know, and she's like, you know, I don't, her big fear was to uh, grow old and die alone. Right. Mm-hmm. She's like, John, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. You know, I just, I just don't want to be alone. And she's like, I met this guy and he wants me to move out with him. And he lives out in Missouri. And she's like, the only thing I, I'm, it's holding me back. I won't go is because of you. And I was like, mom, does he make you happy? She's like, yeah. I said, okay, does, do you love him? She's like, yeah, I love him. And so I looked around, I pointed her all around. I was like, mom, look, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I, I, I want you to be happy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine in here. I got to do what I got to do. I, I want you to be happy. I, I brought enough pain on you. Go be happy. And that was on a Wednesday. I guess the next day she flew out. Moved in with him out in Missouri. And then the, the following Thursday, I got notified she was dead. Oh, no. And uh, she had been shot in the chest. Uh, so there was a big investigation mm-hmm. um, over the fact that she uh, possibly was murdered by the, the boyfriend she was seeing. Uh, my family's kept, pretty much kept me in the dark on that. But all I know is that she wouldn't want me to stay in a bad place, continue to do bad things. Mm-hmm. So I knew when I got home, I had to make something of myself to make her proud. And it was a long time being away. Um, and then having that happen. And uh, mm. it, it really brought so many things into perspective. Like it, it was a lot of growing up. You know, we, we call the show Guts and Grit, but uh, living through that, especially in the scenario that you were in, uh, is incredible. Uh, that many, many men and women wouldn't have been able to do that, would have had a complete breakdown. So the good news, John, is that uh, you definitely paid your debt and you gave it back times a trillion a trillion. So we're going to get into that part now. Well, I want to say, oh, yeah, too, go ahead. That, um, I think, John, that takes a lot of guts right there just to share your story. Yeah, but, it does. That's unbelievable, you. John. I, I didn't know if you were going to bring that up or not. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of guts to do it. Uh, you've been through your whole life. It's, I mean, it's an incredible story. That That uh, is one of the reasons why when we first talked about doing this, that, that was part of, you know, mm. guts and grit is, is just, it's an incredible story, John. So, Again, uh, uh, other people wouldn't have been able to survive. Um, but now we're going to get into the part where you came out the other end, and we're going to discuss the good stuff now, everybody. So, yeah, that that part is done, John. And and you know, for, for those, um, we all make mistakes as kids. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, we're not going to get into me because we <laughs> only have a one-hour show, and we don't have time for all that. But uh, let's just say I've made plenty of those same mistakes myself. It's one of the reasons why John and I have friends. But um, it, it's good to know that you know, as we age, we look back. I'm, I'm giggling at the mm-hmm. fact that when you know your mother was saying, "I'm 45. I'm not getting any younger." That's five years ago for us. And at the time, you know, at the age you were at, you were probably like, "Yeah, 45, <laughs> getting up there." You know, I, I look at it now at, at my age, and I'm like, I, I used to think a 50 year old 
was ancient, you know, like, you know, but now it's a leading commando. So, you know, it makes right. me feel a little bit better. But all right, let, let's, can, let's, can, yeah. Before you move on real quick, can I ask you a question, John? How, how difficult was it being in um, jail as a police officer? Like, did you have a special area they would put you in or? So at, at first it was, um, you know, the concerns with the correctional facilities was to have me in protective custody, mm. right? Which is a separate section within the prison itself. However, the, my neighbors, I'll say, those folks that she, I shared that space with were not people that I would ever want to be around. Most 90 something percent of those folks in protective custody are rapists and, mm-hmm. and child molesters. They're the worst that I could ever think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, there was, I spent a little bit of time in protective custody, hoping that all the media and the hoopla, there was a lot of, a lot of flash about me going to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the inmates were tracking and waiting for me to come in. Um, but then after they, they kept me in protective custody for so long until the idea that things would die down. And then I, I spent, uh, the rest of my time, probably 90% of my time out in general population. Um, and it, it, it was a test. It was mm. cool. A lot of, a lot of days were testing me. Um, I spent some time in solitary confinement for some, some altercations of self-defense. Mm. Um, where, you know, some of the, uh, some of the initiation into some of the gangs was to go and try and get a piece of me. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I've I've uh, had my share of some uh, putting up the fisticuffs, as we say, Mark. Right? Yes, yeah, a, f- a few times, John. I'm sure you you may have done that a few times. But of course, we know you're a, a man of peace most of the time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that that again, I mean, you talk about guts and grit, uh, mm-hmm. and, and a- average people. In my opinion, the average guy wouldn't have been able to get through that. Number one, and number two, if he did, would be in such a state of mental whatever wouldn't have been able to continue on, on a path that you have continued on, which mm-hmm. is one of the most amazing paths that any American citizen could have taken ever. I mean, in the history of our country, I don't care if that sounds bold, to say, uh, excuse me to say, it is what you've done for our country is mm-hmm. past words. You, you have written that check. I know I'm not a veteran, but veterans like to say, you know, you write that check. You've written it now nine times overseas, and and you know that's that's crazy to me and to, to many others that you would dedicate your life, and and I think a part of it is you might have thought I got to give back, but Johnny, you've given back, brother. Just yes. so you know. But anyway, let's let's okay, continue. Yeah, on. let's get on to the let's get on to that. Let's get to the point where you know you're you're out now, and all that bad stuff's kind of behind you, and you, you're looking to to reengage with the military. You want to maybe start from there. Sure. So I, I, I got out and, um, I, I was, uh, my, my, myself and one of my, my good childhood friends, uh, we opened up a glass business. I was doing automobile glass for a little while. And then I was also working, uh, security down at the, the nightclub down at Fano Hall, the rack. I remember. So I was using, I was using my, the, the nightclub money as my spending money while I was trying to get the business up and, and up and going. And then things got a little rough with the glass business. And, uh, my, one of my dads, Brian, he, he came to me and said, well, Hey, you know, do you want to do it on your own? And let's see if we can get you stood up and do it on your own. So me and me and my buddy, Woody, we, we went out, we separated the business and then I went on my own 
And I continued to work at night doing security at the nightclub. And 9-11 happened. And, you know, it would be all on the TVs around the nightclub, around the dinner time. You know, we were down the financial district. So there was a lot of people that would come in for dinners mm-hmm. and you'd sit there and watch it on the news. And I'd see it going on, going on. And, you know, and I, I just I just felt horrible that we were sending all these troops over. And I'm like, geez, you know, maybe I should never have got out of the Marine Corps. I would never have got on the police. I would never have gotten in trouble. I wouldn't know if I should have just stayed in the Marines. Maybe that was my calling. And so the war had been going on for about a year. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm going for this. And I, I didn't know if I would be able to because of my, the time I had served or, or what. So I went in for the process to go back in the Marine Corps. And during the physical, uh, they found there was a lump in my neck. And it was growing inwards. It wasn't growing out. And they said it was the diameter of a golf ball. So I had to leave, go to Boston Medical, Boston University, Boston University Medical Center to go see some experts. They did some ultrasound and MRI. And they said, hey, you have a cancer tumor in your neck. Wow. Like you're disqualified for service. So I was done right then and there. All done. I got in my car and I drove straight to the West Roxbury Veterans Administration Hospital and I asked to talk to my, my primary care doctor. And they were like, well, he's busy. He won't have an appointment for six months. Huh. I was like, no, no, I got to talk to him today. And they're like, sir, you can't see him for six months. I said, no, I might not be here in six months. I need to talk to him mm-hmm. now. And so the woman was like, I'm sorry. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go sit outside his office. So I did. <laughs> I sat outside his office. When he came out to get the next chart for his next patient, I waved at him. I was like, hey, doc, I just got diagnosed with a cancer tumor. We need to talk. Because I've been telling you about this lump in my neck. And you told me it was nothing. He shushes everyone away, brings me in, puts a stethoscope on it. And then he's checking my head. Then he's going down. And, and, it, and he's like, hey, that, it's actually stopping. There's no pulse above your chin. So this area here, he's like, there's no, there's no blood flowing up. He's like, I got to get you in for an examination. The very next day I had to come back. They put a scope in my femoral artery and then up into my neck and I'm watching it on the camera mm. and they could see the tumor and they're like, Oh yeah, that that's got to come out. That's, that's stopping the blood flow to the right side of your brain. It's it's, it was on my carotid artery. Mm. So it was about two weeks later, I was scheduled, went into West Roxbury veterans administration hospital and they conducted the surgery. They brought in doctors from all over the country I don't know. They put like an all call out. Hey, we have this weird operation. Who wants in on it? And they had all these specialists come in. Um, and I was under the, under the knife for about 12 hours. They removed eight inches of my carotid artery and then replaced it with part of my saphenous vein from my thigh. Wow. And I spent, I spent uh, about a month in the hospital being fed intravenously because I lost my gag reflex. So I would choke. And because I lost my gag reflex, I had to have speech therapy for several weeks to try and teach myself how to talk again so I could learn how to swallow. Mm. So I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't swallow. I lost about you know, 50, 60 pounds. Um, and I got out of the hospital, everything. It was around January time frame. And I had to work. I had to stop making money again. So I was back at the club bouncing. I was, there was probably nothing to me other than I could scrap. I was, there was no like size of a man to me like I am today. Uh, big difference. And a recruiter 
came in from the National Guard. He was a regular customer and he was like, hey, have you ever thought of joining the Guard? I was like, no. Like, no, I got no interest. And he's like, I'm telling you, he's like, you want to get in on the war? I said, yeah, I feel I've, I felt so driven to go to the war. And I'll, I'll never forget when the surgeon came in, he had the, this head cover on him, like a like a bandana, like a biker thing. It's all skull and crossbones. And I'm like, oh, what did I get myself into here with this guy? <laughs> and he's talking to me, he's checking me, you know, I'm strapped on the table. And he's he's having small talk with me. And I told him, I said, hey, doc, you know, what's crazy is we found this because I was trying to come back in the service. That's the only way we found this. Mm. I was like, can you can you make me good enough so I can go back in if they'll take me? And he, he stepped back, he looked at me, he's like, I'll do the best I can. And, you know, I was like, well, next thing you know, I was out, right? I passed out and then here it is months later, I'm speech therapy and I'm trying to go in the National Guard. And the reason why guys ask me like, well, you know, why would you even pursue after such a surgery? I'm like, I'm not gonna be a Bible thumper or a holy roller, but I believe that was, that's why God got me through it. He got me through mm-hmm. all those things because I hadn't completed my mission with him. Right? Like there's there's a higher power getting me through these tough things. Mm-hmm. And just as they keep falling on top of me, it's just I just kept the faith and okay, I I don't know how to quit. So I just keep going one step in front of the other and it leads me in in his in the direction of my destiny, right? So I get the speech therapy. I go in for the physical for the National Guard and the doctor's looking at me and he's like, he sees my Marine tattoo on my ribs. And he's like, hey, kid, I don't know how to tell you this, but you, you know how lucky you are to survive that surgery. I was like, yeah, I, I guess. Sure. You know, and he's like, well, I'm not an expert in cardiovascular surgery. He's like, so you know what? I don't want to steal your thunder and just decline you today. He's like, I see that Marine tattoo. So you got to, there's got to be something wrong with you anyways, to want to join during the war. (laughs) He's like, but let's send your packet up to the higher echelons and the experts that deal with this type of stuff, let them decide. So at that point, Mark, I was probably about a month and a half, almost two months back into working, replacing windshields, bouncing at the rack, trying to exercise a little bit. And I got a phone call and I thought it was for a customer, a future job. I answer the phone, safety auto glass. This is John Melson. How can I help you? Hey, this is Colonel, whatever his name was, from the Surgeon General's office. Um, I've been trying to reach out to you. Um, I'm calling in regards to your request to joining the Army National Guard. I was like, yes, sir, you got him. That's me. And he's like, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, son. He's like, but you understand we're a country at war. Yes, sir. I, I understand that. And he's like, and you just underwent this major surgery. That Yes, sir. You know, you should be counting your lucky stars, not trying to put yourself in harm's way. <laughs> and I, was, I was like, sir, that, this, this, this has meaning to me. Like, I, I, if I didn't try and enlist, I would never have found that cancer. So this gave me a second chance at life and I want to make the most of it. And so he was like, well, I just wanted to call and let you know, you'll be hearing from your recruiter. You've been cleared for full duty. Wow. I was like full duty, like I can join and sew buttons on uniforms. I can work in finance. He said, I'm looking at your application. You're coming in the infantry. I was like, that, yeah, that's right. I was all excited. I was, yes, sir. Yeah, that's, that's me. He's like, oh, yeah. Godspeed, son. God bless you. And he hung up the phone. And my recruiter was on the phone, like literally two minutes later. Get down here and get sworn in. 
went down Dorchester. I met up with the, the unit and the recruiter there. They swore me in. I put my name on a volunteer list to go overseas. And I was on a, on my way a month later. I could do three push-ups at that time. <laughs> uh, so, I can, you can do a few more now, I think, right? Yeah, I can do two more. Two, do more. two more, you can do five now. So that, that now, so the first was the Massachusetts National Guard, just so I have it right. Yes. I and joined so, the one eight, first of the 182nd Infantry out of Massachusetts. Okay, so you're in the 182nd, and you're already overseas pretty fast. Yeah, one month. And that, and that was your first, for lack of a better, that's your first wartime tour of duty. Yes. And that was with the infantry in the Mass National Guard, and that was to? Uh, we went to Egypt. To Egypt. Egypt. Okay. And how long we were, were you in the there? Sinai, we were in the Sinai Peninsula. How long were you there for? We were, we were there total six months on ground, but the whole mission was, was about 10 months. Okay. So now that wasn't, not the, you've seen plenty of combat. Was that a, you know, for lack of a better way to say this, one of your easier deployments compared to some of the other things that you've done? Yes. Okay. Okay. As far as easy, as well, far as rockets not coming on our yes, bases, exactly. Yes, exactly. It, it, it and, was and not dealing and not dealing with roadside bombs. Yes, yes that was easier. Uh, we still did have three different terrorist attacks while we were there. Okay. Mm. Um, I did actually respond to a mass casualty incident um, of, of uh, tourists that were attacked by terrorists. Um, so it, it was busy, even still. Uh, but out of comparison to all my other deployments, yes, that was. Different. All right. Now, for those who listen and they might not know 100% about the military, Joy is married to a Marine, so she knows all about it. The National Guard uh, is a little different than the Army. Maybe you could touch on that, John, explain. I mean, I know they're both the Army, but there's a slight difference. If I don't know if you wanted to touch on that. Okay, so what it is, is this, there's three, three compositions that make up the Army. There's an active Army, there's the Reserve, and then there's National Guard. Right. So the National Guard and the Reserve resemble each other, each other very much as far as they have like a monthly requirement to attend. Right. We call them drills. Mm -hmm. So every month in the National Guard, you're required to, to you know, do a weekend drill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you show up at your unit and they'll have scheduled training plus two weeks during the year. Right. Most of the time they'll set, try and set it up either. You'll know a year in advance, either it's going to be a winter annual training or two week summer annual, annual training. And, and they, a lot of times they try and schedule during the summer months because that's when most of the kids are off from school, right? And it just fits, you know, for that type of lifestyle. But you, you're uh, with a res being a reserve or a National Guard soldier, you, we're what people call a part-time soldier, right? So a lot of those guys, they're actually using um, the benefits of being in the military to financially support them, to attend college, credentialing, schooling, um, technical schools, trade schools. Um, so they're still contributing back home in the communities that, you know, they're delivering mm -hmm. pizzas, they're managing businesses, working as police officers, congressmen, senators, and then they're still serving in the capacity of the military that meeting that one weekend a month requirement in the two weeks during the year. All right. So just to get, uh, I, I'm sorry, just to get an idea on your time frame um, in Egypt, what year was that? That was 2004 to 2005. Okay, and I'm forgive me, but not remember what that time is. Was that Muslim Brotherhood type thing going on at that point, or what was happening in Egypt? Yes, the Muslim Brotherhood was was just starting out then. Okay. The Muslim Brotherhood got really big towards 2009 because right at that time it was President Mubarak mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Egypt, 
And he was a big ally or somewhat of an ally to the United States. And it was the Muslim Brotherhood that undermined and took him out uh, later on, years later. All right. So you, you get back from Egypt. Now you're a guardsman at this point. Yes. In so the- I got back from Egypt and there was uh, an opportunity to volunteer again to go back, back overseas. So I was home probably um, maybe three and a half, four weeks. And I volunteered to go back over. Uh, while I was in Egypt, uh, we closed the doors on my business. So I lost my business. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter was born while I was in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter, Sierra, she's beautiful. She's about to graduate high school now. Um, awesome. I, I missed, uh, I miss a lot of that by being, mm-hmm. being away in the army, but it's okay. She, she understands and she knows I love her. Um, but the, I was home, lost the business. I was home about three and a half weeks, got picked up for another mission. And then I was sent, sent over to Iraq and I served with the first of the one five, five infantry out of, um, Mississippi. Okay. And, and we were in, um, Iskandaria of Iraq. So you were with the mask guy, but now you move into the, you're serving with Mississippi guys. And yes. these, these well, are- I was still, I was still a member of the Massachusetts guard, but I was an individual volunteer. Okay. So when the guard, uh, if say New York wants to deploy or not that they want to say New York comes up on orders and New York's going to deploy and you're a Massachusetts guardsman and you, you want to go on the mission. If the leadership of Massachusetts, there isn't a commitment that you need to fulfill then they'll allow you to go and, and fill a position with that unit that has vacancies. So that was, that's really how I got to do all these deployments. It was because somebody else wasn't going, there was a gap and they put a list out there like, Hey, we, we need these positions filled. And I kept raising my hand. Uh, now you're not a ranger at this point, are you? No. Have you got, have you been in touch with the range? And there's no ranger stuff happening yet. Correct? No. Okay. All right. So now you're in Iraq and, and for those who have never been to Iraq, like myself, how was that uh, as a Boston guy getting over to Iraq? What was it like to, to get into a war zone, I guess? I mean, I know Egypt, obviously, you had terrorist attacks, but now you're, for lack of a better term, in the bleep. What was that like? Um, it's what I wanted. It's why I joined. Um, Mississippi, I'd say we, because later on I became a member of the Mississippi Guard. Uh, we, we lost a lot of good soldiers. Um, and not to point blame or anything, bad things happen in combat. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, when when we lose in combat, means we're dying. Right? When we win, we means we're killing. So that's, you know, so we were winning, but we did take some losses, right? Um, being exposed real life to some of those IEDs, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, IED strike while I was there, blew out the back of the Humvee. Um, some of the raids we were on, one of the raids I was ended up uh, being a part of was in um, Musaib, where it was a village, a city nearby. We went and did a, did a raid there, and we ended up getting the blueprints for the New York City blood, uh, subway station. And that was all over the news back when. And it was just like, I was telling my dad, I'm like, Dad, you won't believe it. I was on that raid. That was us. That was, that was us guys. Um, there was weapons caches that we found that we had to destroy in place and ended up being like newsworthy. Um, so there was, there was some things during that tour. I was really amazed and, and very excited and and fulfilled that I was a part of, um, 
You were still but like infantry. most of the guys, we, the, the, the rotation cycle to go on out on patrol. Some guys would get a day. It was stagger. Some guys would get a day, then two days off, whatever. I, I didn't take any days off. And everyone was like, man, you got a death wish. I just kept going out. If, if Mark, if your patrol was going out and, and it needed another guy to go out, I suited up and I went out with you. If someone from Delta company was going out in a different sector, I'd roll out with them so I could mm. learn what was going on in that sector and then share that information with my guys to make my guys more effective by picking up how other people were doing things that were that I would see that were, worked. I wouldn't bring bad habits back. I'd only want to absorb the good stuff, right? And John, you're still infantry at this point? Yes. And, and what, a lot of what you're saying sounds familiar. My husband was infantry as well. Uh, what was yeah. your, your rank then, Johnny? So I... Um, I deployed to Egypt as an E3, private first class. Uh, when we returned, I, I was promoted to specialist about a month, two months mm -hmm. before we returned. And then in about two, three months before, I, right before I got to Iraq, um, I picked up sergeant. So wow. I, I deployed to Iraq with Mississippi as a sergeant. And then uh, great tour, great tour, even with the, the ups and downs was so pumped that I was a part of it. Um, those guys put in a lot of hard work. And then I come back to Camp Shelby and we went to demob, which was deprocess and go back to being Joe civilian. And as I'm going desk, you know, station to station with my paperwork to check out some Colonel Fulbert Colonel was going station to station the opposite way. So we we're crossing paths. So he was in processing. I was out processing. So I stepped back and said, hey, sir, you go ahead. You know, I got all day. I'm, I made it back in one piece. I'm good. You, you, you can in process. And he's like, no, Sergeant, you go. We started talking. And, he's, and he says to me, he said, hey, um, where are you coming from? I told him, I said, I just got back from Iraq, sir. I was with the 155 out of Mississippi. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, you guys saw a lot of action. I'm like, oh, we, we stayed busy. And he's like, how would you like to bring that combat experience with me to Afghanistan? Mm. I was like, you want me to go to Afghanistan? And he's like. I could use a guy with combat experience. Sure. I was like, I'm going home to be unemployed or I can go back over and do what I like doing. And I was like, well, my son was born now while I was in Iraq. My daughter was born right before Egypt. My son was born while I was in Iraq. I was like, sir, if I can go home and see my son, I'm yours. I'll go over with you. And he's like, okay, come over this way. They changed my orders. I was not to out process. I was leaving for Afghanistan. I said, when do we go to Afghanistan? He's like, oh, we'll leave it in three weeks. <laughs> wow. I was like, oh, geez. I was like, well, what's our mission? He's like, oh, you're going to love this. He's like, you're going to be embedded with the Afghan army, teaching them how to be soldiers and fight the Taliban. I was like, I'm your guy. I'm the, when, when can I buy a plane to go see my son so I can hurry up and come back here? Because let's go do this mission. Um, that was amazing. Amazing. I learned Pashtun. So now I, here it is. I could speak Arabic. Now I'm learning Pashtun and I took four years of Spanish. Now, if you try and talk to me, I confuse it all up together. I say, hola, <laughs> Tasha Kor, Zien. I, I mix it all together now. Right. <laughs> all right. So let me ask you a question, Johnny. You get to Afghanistan. And by the way, we're going to have to, uh, I didn't realize the time. We've been talking for a bit. We're going to probably make this, the, the whole uh, bio thing into a three-part show because we don't have time to get to it all of it today. But um Afghanistan compared to Iraq. Talk to me. Major difference, correct? Oh, so the fighting was different. 
Okay. The, the fighting was if the, the the heat. I was in southern Afghanistan at that time, so the heat was the same. It was it was just hot, 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 hot. Um, food was similar. Um, culture was a little different. Afghan Muslims thought they were better than Iraqi Muslims. They thought Iraqi Muslims were, were dirty and they were more pure because um, they upheld more of like the Taliban mindset, stuff like that. Um, but the uh, the fighting in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq, they'd hit you with an IED and maybe nothing. Just, they just hope they blew up and killed everyone in the truck, right? Maybe some small arms fire after following the, the IED explosion in case we dismount the vehicles and they want to try and shoot us. We get into a little bit of a firefight. In Afghanistan, they'll stay around and fight. Um, so whenever there was any type of IED strike or an RPG rocket launched at us, oh, we were in for a fight. They, they, they would be established. They'd have fighting positions and they would try and fight it out with us. And now, so the fighting was a lot different in Afghanistan. All right, so this is your third tour. Yes. Egypt, Iraq, Afghanistan. How long, the first one we said Egypt was six months, or eight, yep. eight months, how, Iraq was how long? Nine months. Nine months, Afghanistan? One year. One year. So you, you're slowly going up, John, six, nine, yeah, one yeah. year. I got a question for you about Afghanistan too. Were the Afghanis open to you training them? Mm, good question. Well, I'll put it to you this way. They, they appreciated at least some uh, exhumed this, this aura of that they appreciated our efforts, right? But they were not going to be American soldiers. Mm. So when I saw a lot of guys that were, that, you know, I worked with, I saw them get very frustrated because they weren't executing it like an American soldier would execute a, a drill or they wouldn't hold a weapon the way we would hold a weapon. It's like, I got it. Uh, but this, we can show them, but they're still going to have an Afghan flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But what we show them and what the end result is, is still better than what we started with. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we just, I try and convince guys, look at the small wins, right? Mm -hmm. At least he's not dragging it on the ground anymore. At least he's holding it up out of the dirt. So that's a win. Right. Um, getting them to pay attention uh, or, or not, not be high on drugs when we're doing training or doing missions. When, if they weren't doing that, that was a win. So to try and get them off of the, the poppy, the opium, you know. So there was, there was a lot of differences in the training, but you just had to figure out how to gauge your, your measures of success with them. And then always know, like, because you're embedded with them and you're doing missions partnered with them, uh, I always kept them one or two steps in front of me. Yeah, right. gotcha. Yeah. So I didn't always have to keep looking behind me. You, yep. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Maybe not literally, but, you know, mentally, you play that out in your head. Like, okay, do I really want to be up here leading the charge right now? Probably not. No, yeah. It's it's funny. You, you sound like when I used to be a commercial fisherman, we would try to hire somebody. We used to say, well, if he shows up sober, we'll take that for the day. You know, that's, that's good enough. For, that's good enough for the day. In the commercial fishing industry back when I was doing that, we would say, we used to always try and get new guys to come on. I'm like, hey, he's sober. So that's good enough. We got him here for the day. But, John, I think we're going to actually wrap it up because uh, we have to do a couple of things here. And we're actually going over the time frame. But... We are the Guts and Grit podcast. Today was an incredible show. Uh, John, 
sharing your story takes a I can't keep saying this takes a lot of guts yeah. though it, yeah. it really does uh, and we're not even done with it yet we're gonna do one more episode talking about John's life and a couple of other things that I know including a little incident that got you to the New England Patriots if I recall mm. correctly as the uh, was that citizen of the year or something like that I recall that I, no. I I also remember when you worked at the rack by the way I was working in City Hall and I used to be like Melson's across the street doing the door so we used to all love to get out of work and I'd be like they'd be like well the, the, the rack's gonna have a line like it doesn't matter Melson does the door there and we'd walk up and get by the whole door and everyone would like, think we were the coolest guys ever I remember when I heard first that you had left and you had gone overseas I was such whatever at the time I'm like damn it there goes my rack hookup but that's all right but, uh, but I, I recall that time greatly and fondly it was a simpler time but anyway Joy you want to add a few things before we wrap it up today I, I agree with Mark just that was a lot of guts to share what you did and that, that's a lot to go through emotionally uh, with your mom passing while you're in jail I mean that's, that's got to be rough but I give it to you we've got some grits for sure it's guts and grits baby but uh, we're going to take it take us out today and we're going to come back for one more episode uh, that we're going to lead us up to John's soon-to-be 51st birthday. But, Johnny, why don't you take us out, and don't forget your famous saying at the end that I now live by when I go out and go for my walks. Okay, I, I just want to thank everybody for watching the show and you guys for making me a part of this. This is amazing. Um, I, I love the opportunity to get a chance to, to tell my story. If, if it helps anyone to uh, get up out of those dark places, get, get up when you knock down and keep going, it'll... It'll get brighter. It, it gets brighter. I'm living proof of it. Again, everybody, thank you very much. You. you can follow us here on Facebook. We're also, of course, on Podbean. All the links will be down below uh, during this after this episode. We thank you for tuning in today. And join us next week for another episode of Guts and Grit. Thank you much, everybody. Thank you. Thank John, you see you next week.